Welcome to 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. The podcast that covers all things about humans, technology, and particularly the bit in between. With your host, Barry Kirby. Welcome to this episode of 1202, the Human Factors Podcast. Normally, when we talk about human performance, we're normally talking around how we do things in, in whatever environment that we're in. But one of the things we really take for granted is literally the air that we breathe. And as we become more aware of environmental issues, it's easy to forget the immediate issue of how the air that we breathe can really affect what it is that we're doing. So I thought it'd be a really, really interesting topic to engage with. And to do this, we've got two experts in the field. Uh, the first one is uh, Professor Paul Lewis. Now, uh, Paul holds a joint chair between the School of Management and the Medical School at uh, Swansea University. He's the director of the Centre of Health and Environmental Management Research and Innovation in the School of Management and leads a respiratory diagnostics group in medicine. Now, when I practiced this earlier, there's no way I got, all, got that out in one go first time, so I'm really quite chuffed with myself. Paul and his team have a really special interest in modelling and assessing the impacts of particulates, including PM10 and PM2.5. And I'm hoping that during the, inter, uh, during the course of this interview, we'll actually learn what PM10 and PM2.5 actually is and why it's important. Um, but Paul isn't just confined to the, uh, to the university. He's also a member of the Welsh Assembly uh, Cross-Party Group, a Clean Air Act for Wales. And from 2018, Paul has been an expert member of the Welsh Government Wales Air Quality Direction Independent Review Panel. Um, since 2020, he's joined the Welsh uh, Government Clean Air Advisory Panel as an expert member. So it's a, it's a good reason about why we listen to him, because actually the Welsh Government is listening to him. From our industrial side, we're going to also talk to Joe Paulson. And Joe Paulson is the Managing Director of uh, Vindico, who's actually looking at some uh, the real innovative technologies, but actually making things in a way that um, is accessible, um, more so than, uh, than, than they are already. But I'm gonna, not going to steal uh, Joe's thunder. I want him to tell us uh, more about the, the ideas and the innovations that, that he's bringing here to South Wales. So welcome to you both, and thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you, Barry. Thank you, Barry. So, Paul, if we come to you first, uh, before we get into the nitty-gritty about what is air and everything, You've, um, you've got a, a, your two degrees, your, your first degree and your PhD in genetics. How did you get into that in the first place? Why? Um, it's so long ago, I, I can't really remember, Barry, but um, I, um, I left school, I, I left school and went into, uh, went to work for Prudential, insurance company. So I went into um, finance originally, a couple of years there, and then, then I went to university after that. But I, I think my interest in genetics was from, I think I don't know, book on genetics for Christmas one year, um, put it on the sack and we sat reading it all Christmas day. And I was fascinated in, in things like inheritance and molecular structures of DNA. And um, yeah, it, it, it stuck in there and um, went off to uni to do a um, degree in genetics and then stayed on to a PhD, um, like I said, in um, molecular genetics, but um, also informatics, hard course of data analytics as well. Um, and that's where I learned to model and um yeah i've been been doing that ever since um became a researcher um on the research group climbed my way up the uh, greasy academic pole and um became a professor about five years ago um job like i said jointly with the school of management because um i had an interest in innovation and technology development as well as um, um specializing in um, respiratory health um, so the genetics of respiratory health mainly cancer lung cancer and non-cancer diseases such as chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and, and asthma and um, all those things kind of came together after developing technologies to try and um, help manage patients 
um, diagnose disease. So that was the tech side. Uh, the modeling side, like I say, had already learned. And um, yeah, in the School of Management, um, sort of spin up some companies and um, went from there. And um, at that time, I think about five years ago, I became really interested in air pollution and um, how we could develop technologies that could prevent, help prevent people being exposed to high levels of air pollution, which um, impacted on their respiratory health, which I was interested in, but also other diseases like cardiovascular disease, and I'll probably cover a bit later, mental health as well. So, uh, yeah, a bit of a complicated track to where, where I'm today, but uh, yeah, very interesting one. Must have um, stopped you from getting bored. Um, but um, yeah, time. <laughs> <laughs> Joe, um, you've taken a, a different path to get, getting where you are, but you are now uh, Managing Director of, of Vindico. Um, tell us a bit about, A, how you got to where you are, and, and then also tell us a bit about Vindico and what it is you do. Well, it's actually not. It starts off with similar origins to Paul in that um, I had a book, and it was visual basic computing for my seventh birthday along with our Commodore VIC-20. Classy. Yeah, and the, and the two things that's funny that, uh, as Paul was talking, that I realised just now, is that, that things haven't changed that much. So a new piece of technology was there, and I had to work out how to use it, how to make the most of it. <laughs> equally, I was surrounded, obviously, in the time in the 80s with um, parents and relatives that didn't have a clue what it could do for them. And actually, when I think back, I remember teaching them, explaining them. I mean, we obviously all remember the jokes about having a five-year-old to show you how to set your video recorder in those times, but... Yeah, so that's, that's where I started from, and the technology has changed, and the audience has changed, but it, it's still kind of the same. It's the, how do we get the most out of technology? But um, uh, my route was definitely the non-academic one. It was in the, um, in the early 90s, uh, building computers and selling them in the free papers. Um, I, my dad actually opened up uh, the first PC repair shop in Edinburgh, and it was also a Hoover shop. <laughs> out, out the back but it was it was the first one at the time uh, and the other odd memory i've got from that time is i'm um, having a receipt on the wall for five and a half thousand pounds for a spectrum zx81 <laughs> imported from america but anyway digressing nice. but on, on, so that whole path i think my path was set quite early on it was always going to be around technology it's always going to be around um getting the most out of technology and, and, and teaching people about you know how they can get the most out of it um obviously to make money out of that you've got to deal with businesses so that's, that's the route I took quite early on uh, in, in building relationships with businesses. And that's really where Vindico is a little bit different to a standard technology company, is that fundamentally we're a relationship business. So it really is about understanding the clients we're working with more than it is about providing them a set piece of the technology. Uh, uh, and that whole, we don't like calling it consultancy, not like none of us do, but that whole consultancy piece and that learning piece and that trust building phase enables us to always always try and look at things with a, a blank bit of paper rather than what we've got on the shelf uh, and attack it from what do they need to achieve. And that sounds really basic, but it's, it's generally not adhered to. Um, we start with that blank bit of paper, help businesses achieve what they need to achieve. And if, yes, if there's technology along the way, great. If it's off the shelf, possibly. But we've also got a talented development team in-house, web development, software development. We could, uh, we could do hardware innovation, um, concept, prototyping, We've kind of got those levels from idea to concept, from concept to prototype, prototype to product, all the bits attached to it. Uh, and, and really what has to be at the end is what the customer wanted to achieve from the outset. So it's, it's really good fun. Brilliant. No, it's, I, 
obviously we've been in covid now for um what seems like forever um apparently today sunday i had no idea um but the, but the um how have you found it paul have you found working in through this covid period because you must have i mean obviously you, you're doing your research but you also must be lecturing and things like that although we've had the summer break you, it must have been quite a traumatic time for you to try and crowbar everything in so quickly into a new a new way of working surely yes yeah but one since um just before uh lockdown my wife's a nurse so i've had the added um stress of uh of hearing firsthand what might might be going on in the hospitals within within the NHS as well. But um, to be honest, um, I've found it easier working at home than um, commuting in, uh, driving into uh, university each day, and you've got the usual distractions. Um, when you're in the workplace, um, they disappear. So I've been far more productive, I think, working from home uh, since March. Um, the term has just started, so this is the first time universities have delivered, uh, or most universities have delivered online lecturing. Um, we've just finished the first week of that. It seems to have gone quite well, but it's a new way of doing for us. Um, and um, maybe from a human factors perspective, at the end of this academic year, things have changed um, considerably, but we wait and see how, how the students have coped with it, which is the most important thing, and um, how, they, how well they've learned, I guess. So uh, we're a little bit nervous about it all. But we're certainly in a new way of doing within um, academia at the moment. But um, yeah, but not having that commute in terms of air pollution, I'm, I'm, I feel like I'm polluting less. So I'm uh, relatively happy, I think, though. So, and also, truly, the, the, the time you only have to put a shirt on, you don't, don't have to worry about your pants anymore because it's only just a webcam, isn't it? So, well, anyway. yeah, in, in my pants, but my best shirt. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, that's fair enough. And Joe, you've sort of um, not kept sitting still. You've really taken some opportunities through this, haven't you? So I know you've you've looked at a couple of products um, and and innovations. How what is it about what you've done that um, that you've not just sort of sat back? You've actually seen seen the opportunity and actually jumped on it. What have you What have you been doing about that? Well, we well, obviously to start with, we had a bit more capacity because a lot of our clients had to cut back a bit. So we do a lot of work in sport and um, some work in events and leisure as well and the, the venue technologies. Um, so because they pulled back, that gave us a bit more capacity to look back and go, okay. Clearly there was a lot of people, especially in our sector, jumping on to make everything track and trace solutions, or all sorts. Uh, definitely, I say capitalizing. I don't normally do not like that word, but I don't mean it in a very nice way this time. Uh, and what we, what we really want to sit back and do is, okay, this is great. What, why don't we use this as an in rather than uh, exploitation and could we use this as a reason to put something in that would have significant value afterwards kind of use this as the excuse to get it in uh, we've got a lot of clients we've been working with for years that have always scurried around the idea of having these wonderful systems we just haven't got either the time the money um, the, the, the resource the available personnel and it was like well, okay well how about we attach it to something useful so that's what we did with an application we created called swap um, safe workplace application and uh, our pilot client was Transport for Wales. Um, so they've always asked us for audit trails and checking in and checking out and could there be something done? They've got 274 train stations in Wales uh, and, and a huge logistic task when you've got some, over a thousand contractors and then having to deal with network rail and the plethora of safety things that go with them and not to mention, well, that's better not mention the unions, but the unions involved as well, um, especially when you start talking about logging in times in and out. 
Uh, so we, we kind of looked at this, well, okay, we'll wrap, wrap this up as COVID, you know, how can we do it? So of course we need contactless sign in, sign out. Of course we need the, the COVID questionnaire. Let's, add, let's make that feel, make the employee, the contract, the visitor feel a bit safer, give them the utility to be able to report an issue uh, when they're there. So whether they can't carry out the duties because they're social distancing or incorrect PPE uh, or even, even a wellness issue, because it could also be used at home. To, to sign into a, a remote workplace. Just that, that direct access rather than going in the, the common HR route to, to kind of bring a bit of special attention to it. And, and even bringing that in on the signing out. So on the signing out process, asking them how the day went, you know, bringing in that wellness element, as well as anything, obviously, contraction has been covered when someone leaves a site. Uh, and that has been a great excuse to get any system that now will give them the fire register, that now lets them know where everybody is on site, that now handles time and attendance, um, that takes control when we've got pre-certification on RAMs, on insurances, on any induction videos. We've managed to wrap all these great things in that we really struggled to do it as one hit in the system, but COVID's allowed us to actually do it. You know, it's been that excuse. It's been the, the, the put aside the resource, the put aside the budgets to do it. But that's, you know, we love this because, I mean, you know, we're all really, you know, hand on heart open that six months, a year from now, we start to see normality a few years to go and it's, and it's a memory that they'll still use this. This is still great. This is still bringing in efficiency and uh, performance, much less admin. I mean, I couldn't, we could have a four hour podcast taking apart the paperwork that's involved in <laughs> people getting off in 274 Welsh train stations. Um, so that, what they're going to get at the end of it, going back to what I was saying, what they really want to achieve is fantastic. And, and we're almost using, so yes, it is opportunistic, but, but in a good way. Well, they do say that, isn't it? That, um, Necessity is the mother of all invention, so and you know, uh, and innovation. So actually, if you're using it, but actually seeing it in the wider context of it's not just a COVID thing, that's the catalyst. But actually, there's an opportunity to um, to do bigger things there. Then um, surely that's going to have some uh, some lasting impact. You are listening to twelve oh two, the Human Factors Podcast. We wanted to take the opportunity to say thank you for your support. You can help further by rating us through your podcast provider, sharing us through social media, and telling your friends and colleagues. Let's work together in raising awareness of the value in putting users at the center of what we do. So let's get us around to our, our main topic. It's around air. Now, it's as I said right at the top, it's... It's everywhere, isn't it? It's, you, you, you literally, well, you, hopefully you can't get away from it unless there's something um, going drastically wrong. Um, but when we're talking about uh, performance and, and things like that, why is it so important to get the quality of it right? I mean, fundamentally, Paul, what, what is in air? What is air? Well, air is everywhere, unless you're living in a vacuum. But um, air, most people think of air, the air we breathe um, as oxygen. But... Air, 78% of air is nitrogen. Oxygen makes up about um, 20%. Um, and the remaining 1% of the soil is, is trace gases, like argon, as well as carbon dioxide. Carbon dioxide, we might come back to in a bit, but carbon dioxide makes up just 0.04% of the air we breathe. But we breathe in oxygen, we breathe out carbon dioxide. But um, Carbon dioxide or CO2 is important because um, it, it's got a really important function in, in keeping heat just above the Earth's surface within the atmosphere. If carbon dioxide 
um, you know, we're all aware of global warming and whether it's man-made or it's, it, it's natural. If, if the level of carbon dioxide increases, then um, it traps more heat and thus the, the earth warms. So it's not just oxygen it's, um, that's um, important. It's about maintaining and sustaining the levels of uh, carbon dioxide as well. But, but people think of air as gas as well, but air also contains tiny, tiny particles, natural particles that can come from the desert, wind blows particles onto there, that comes from the sea, sea spray. And these particles are important in our air because water molecules stick to them and they form uh, tiny droplets of water and these tiny droplets of water form clouds, and that gives us our rain, etc. natural water cycle that, that we get back its back off. So, so having particles um, in our air is important, um, but if the level of particles gets too high for us, I mean, we, we, as humans, we've evolved to sort of live with um, a concentration of uh, about four to five microns per cubic meter. That's how they measure air particles and, and air pollution. Um, and that, that's natural, that's, that's healthy for us, but if it starts to increase, maybe double to 10, 15, 20 microns per cubic meter, that's when we have um, problems, health issues, because um, our lungs can't cope with it. So that's generally um, air pollution, um, levels of particles that are too high, as well as other gases as well, nitrogen dioxide, sulfur dioxide, and these tend to come from um, combustion. So um, we tend to think of air pollution coming from cars, buses, lorries, um, within urban areas. But in reality, it's combustion everywhere. It could be forests being burnt, um, our industry, of course, but also um, farms as well. Agriculture contributes a huge amount of um, air pollution in UK, Europe, um, and elsewhere. But generally, air pollution um, is... Um, particles and some nasty gases, like I said, nitrogen dioxide and sulfur dioxide. Years ago, sulfur dioxide was a real problem for the industry. Um, but these days, it's nitrogen dioxide and tiny particles that are considered the worst pollutants. So particles are, like I said earlier, classified as either we call PM10 or PM2.5. PM10 are particles, any type of particles could be anything, it could be pollen, it could be you know, fine grains of um, dust um, 10 because it's 10 micrograms or less in that, um, in uh, micrometers, sorry, less or less. So 10 microns you know, is, is invisible. 2.5 microns is PM 2.5. These are that small that they can get right down into the air sacs of the lung. And particles smaller than that, where it's a sort of nanometer scale, they can cross into your blood and they can circulate in. And that's important for, um, um, Human factors because if the particles can use the brain, they can um, they can impair cognitive function mm -hmm. and affect behaviour as well. So that's why. So going forward um, is we'll probably cover it later. That um, nitrogen dioxide pollution is, is decreasing. The governments are are, are putting strategies and, and um, mitigation strategies to try and reduce these. But particles are are going to be the air pollution concern for the future because they are um, increasing um, um, right across urban areas and the UK. So from what you're saying as well then, it's um, obviously we have airflow, airflow and there's certain things that you see that, you do, that pollution doesn't necessarily have to be happening in 
the area that you're at because with the circulation of what you get it can flow over different areas i mean i guess a really obvious example is when they they talk about having um the sand being whipped up in the sahara desert and we see it falling on our cars here in the uk or when the chernobyl incident happened and the radiation was um being uh, flowed all the way through to again in the in the uk so really the, there's a level there of of you know, could you say you know some of it's actually not our fault, but we're having to deal with the de- dealing with the outputs anyway. That, that's right. Um, nitrogen dioxide um, is, is very local problem because it comes from you know, exhaust pipes or, or industry that could be controlled as a gas. The particles they do grow in from thousands, tens of thousands of miles. Uh, good example this year, um, just after lockdown, we saw in the media air pollution um, had dropped everywhere. This was great for us, our health. But they were talking about nitrogen dioxide. Cars were taking off the road, and um, the NO2 levels um, dropped. The particulates would be saw in April in Wales, right across the UK. Partic- PM2.5 particles, they shot up the concentration. And that's because um, farmers in Germany, northwestern France, Belgium, they were um, spreading muck um, across the fields. Right. And the wind was blowing in the um, uh, <laughs> easterly direction, blew right across the UK. And, like I say, agriculture, ammonia in particular, is a huge source of uh, PM2.5, um, the PM2.5 being breathed, even in, in, in urban areas. It's coming in from the fields, um, agriculture, and the wind is blowing it from, except it could be thousands of miles away. And there's little we can do about that in the UK if it's coming from, from outside. Wow. So, and the only way, so from what you're saying, basically the pollution, it, it's not just a simple pollution measure there's a, it's actually a very complex um catalogue of different things that you've got to measure and 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 be able to understand and detect so joe from your perspective how if we, if we've got such a complex makeup of what pollution is and or what um what what the concentrations of things are within air how do we measure them well measuring them's easier than what we're going to do with it but i think uh, just following a bit from what Paul said there, it's definitely not around just measuring and, and sharing the data because like you said, for 80, it can be an occasion to 80% of the data we could retrieve in a sense. You can't do anything about it. It's coming from France, it's coming from Germany. Mm-hmm. You know, but it is about, okay, so forget the sensor for a minute, but that information, how do we get that to the person that would actually make a difference to their life? So to you or I, it might not make much difference that someone's spreading muck in Germany, but to someone in, you know, Master Tidwell, that uh, suffers badly with some kind of COPD disease. Um, they, they might need to know in advance and how do we get that information to them to say, you know, this is the day that you need to close your windows. This is the day you stay outside. This is going to be bad outside. Don't take any long walks outside. So when we take it back from that's the kind of thing we really need to achieve, how do we do that? That, that makes us look at how we're measuring at the moment to start with, obviously, to get that. Okay, how are we getting that data now? Can we answer that question now? And the answer is a flat no. Right. Uh, it, it's all done from 90 something percent of all data we're getting is all from modeling um, and Paul can tell you a little bit I'll jump in a minute and tell you a little bit more about the modeling uh, to talk about how granular that is uh, it's, it's obviously inexpensive and it's wide scaping and so that, that's clearly why they use it you an idea of air quality sensors the DEFRA, the AURN roadside station you've probably seen in the big green cages outside of the road how many other wheels Paul? Um, a handful, maybe 10, yeah. 10 at the most. So that's 10 sensors. Yeah, if you go to the DEFRA website to actually look at the air quality and wear, there's something like 8,000 little individual measurement plots. The rest are modeled from 
from those stations. So in the entire country of Wales, we've only got 10 sensors telling us what the air quality is? Yeah, they're there boats, and that, that's mainly nitrogen dioxide as well for, yeah. for the death. But there's a lot of, uh, for Preno 2, there's the local authorities, um, they use something called fusion tubes, which are, which are cheap um, tubes they sort of stick up in a lamppost beside the road. And there's about a thousand of those across Wales. Um, 10% of those are the legal levels of NO2. Um, we found that from our own research in our group. But um, they are very approximate readings. And it's quite a high error rate with these as well. Um, and they only give you monthly, monthly readings as well. So you put them up for a month, take them down, and send them off to be uh, analysed. And that gives you a rough estimate of what NO2 is for the month. For particulates for monitoring, there's no such equivalent technology um, that, they, that local authorities and governments use. It's these very expensive AURN stations, and there's a, there's a, there's literally a handful across Wales, and these are in Swansea, Cardiff. Um, that's pretty much it for for particulates, and you get some you, you get background readings there in those stations. But again, there's only one or two of those in Wales as well. So in terms of real live monitoring, there's very little going on. So to actually get usable data that would be of use to people that need it. The, the cost involved in, you know, putting 400 of those around Wales would just be astronomical. It's never going to get off the ground. They're not going to put more than one or two probably in the next decade of what they've got now. So it is that, okay, well, how do we get that information in other ways? And that's what's led us to design our own air quality sensors. Uh, right. With false healthy you know, algorithms. And obviously geared towards, we all know the level, but I mean, I haven't been on a meeting in a week that hasn't had IoT or Laurel One mentioned in it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but yes, that's just one of the many ways that these that we can communicate, you know. Um the, the, the simple geographical uh, challenges of Wales means we're still going to be using 3G on most of them. Uh, but yes, Laura One and IoT will put it in there because we can we can do it and it adds to the nice the, the nice buzz phrase. But it needs low-cost sensors, it needs accurate low-cost sensors, and it needs obviously when we're comparing to it doesn't need it every second, but we do need it every 15 minutes, you know. So it's, it's that kind of level of live data that we need to, to, to actually start to have this. Our nirvana would be that kind of early warning system, you know, so we actually know what's coming in. But it, it goes a level above that as well. It says, well, if we can, if we can build these low-cost sensors, which I'll tell you more about in a minute because we have, um, once they are rolled out and we actually understand um, what impacts coming off the coast, what impacts coming in from across the border or from town to town, you actually know then on the local level, how much of that you could do something about. So then when you actually start to do initiatives such as turning the car off at the lights or they're putting hedge barriers or temporary shielding, which you see in a lot of shopping centers now and outside that, uh, you could actually know that so much of the area you can do nothing about, but actually what you're impacting is the difference. So it makes your measuring of uh, whatever um, campaign or uh, strategy you're going to try you know, I, mean, I mean, one of the ones we looked at before was, I think there was a 10% reduction in particulates from turning off at the lights. Right. On one of the studies we looked at. So, and it was great. So you had people standing there with cardboard signs, please turn your conditions off. And they measured it over a week and it, it was like 10 students helping out. You know? So they're holding boards. Something you could never ever scale. You could never scale that. Yeah. And a static sign would quickly become, there's another conversation because a static sign would become wallpaper in two minutes and start working. But a person with a sign, you're always going to notice. Yeah. waving at you, you know. So if you just take that, that they managed to impact 10% of that traffic of the particulates. But what if 60% of those particulates they could do nothing about? That goes from a 10% reduction to a 25% reduction. Right. It, 
No, so, sorry, yeah, sorry. I was just going to add that I think there's an important message in this. You can you can have the best sensors in the world. Yeah. You can have your sensors everywhere. You can be generating data. It's important what you do with that data and how you translate that into information for the public. Mm -hmm. But it's also important to remember, I think, that we're all the, we're all polluters. We're all, we are the polluters. We have to change our behaviour. This is all going to the solution to be behavioural change. And we we might be fit and healthy and less impacted by air pollution, but it, it's the other people out there that might be in the car behind you, that might be walking next to you, that have some condition that might make them really susceptible to the impact of air pollution. And, you know, nobody dies. Of, there's no evidence that people die instantly from breathing in heavily polluted air. You see figures of 20 to 30, 40,000 people dying annually in the UK because of air pollution. But in reality, these people have got some precondition. They've got a respiratory disease. They've got cardiovascular disease, or you know, or, or, or diabetes. Air pollution is, is really these are early deaths. Air pollution is, is bringing forward um, a death in a person. And in Wales, there's probably somewhere between one, 1,500 people each year who die prematurely because they have that air condition, but are breathing in higher levels of air pollution relative to others as well. So it's what we do to try and prevent that, not just also, it's not just about protecting our own health. But okay. It is the quality of life for those people suffering as well, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Mm. So that's it. So going back to our sensor, so we started this project about our Think Air project. We started um, two years ago now. And we're now at the stage now we're in the process of rolling out uh, a sensor network across Wales. Uh, uh, it does update every 15 minutes. It is data live to a dashboard. We are putting them in key areas where we where we really have black holes of data, uh, and we're we're analysing that data now to obviously guide us when we look at the sensors next. But to give you an idea, when we say low cost sensor, what does that mean? Um, our sensor, if we compare it to the the UK standard, which is the EURN big green boxes outside of the road, uh, cost on our sensor is about a one hundredth of the cost of those. Wow. Uh, and yet we've calibrated for six months alongside those and we have a 93% correlation with our data. This podcast is supported by K-Sharp, the human science research and human factors consultancy. If you want to know how innovating in the relationship between humans and technology can add value to your business, product, or research, then visit www.ksharp.co.uk If we've only got a few of them in Wales anyway, and therefore you're having to use modelling to extrapolate all them small data points that you mentioned earlier, then actually it's a no-brainer, isn't it? Because if you're, if, you're that, if you're that close to being accurate, I mean, I don't know, Paul, what, what, what is the accuracy of the modelling uh, that they're using? It's actually market? funny because the AURN has a threshold accuracy. Yeah. Uh, it's around about plus or minus 29. Um, AURN is, is about plus or minus 15%. Uh, right. There are, there are the, sorry, the error rate is around about 15 yeah. So I like to jump in now that ours, that means ours could be even more accurate. Well, <laughs> <laughs> nice, like it. They have an error rate of around about 25%, but the modeling that's used, um, is, and you know, models are only as good as the data that, that can get pumped into it. So it's not, it's not the modeler's fault, but the best models... No, 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 not at all. The best models at the moment are still have an error rate of around about 29, 30%. So yep. the modeling has a much higher error rate than, than any... Um, sensor technology or, or, or monitoring te technology that's that's out there, and with 
you know, people are going to, you know, with, with IoT, people are going to be buying um, sensors and kits from from the from the internet, from, you know, from China for maybe a couple of hundred quid. They can use it in their homes. They're going to be walking around with them. You can see where are those being developed for the next ten years. Everybody accepts that in ten years' time, people have air pollution monitors, personal monitors everywhere. It's it's how that data is used and regulated is is important. So so they're getting the right information from them. So sensors will improve, but it's but it's more about the data at the moment. How that's used. And actually, you raise a really good point there as well. That actually, I think we naturally look and say, well, we're actually talking about outside um air pollution and things like that but there's a significant problem with um pollution inside um i mean from my from my, my own perspective working a lot with the military then the military work in a lot of confined areas be that on um you know a ship or a submarine or, or an aircraft or you know an armored vehicle you they, they get closed down an awful lot um but in everyday life we all work in offices we are even even in our homes and I don't see that much of a drive, apart from maybe carbon, carbon monoxide detectors, because obviously that's quite a, um, quite a big deal. But they're the only real air sensors that I can think of that you would have inside, inside the home. So do you see with, the cost, with, with IoT and the cost of sensors potentially coming down, uh, like, like Joe's alluded to, it could make all this more available and therefore we could be uh, more cognizant of our own personal airspace? Yes. Um... Indeed, I, I think... Was that a bit of a leading question? I guess it was, wasn't it? Well, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's a good question. If you, you know, we spend on average 90% of our time indoors. When people yeah. think about air pollution, they think about outdoor pollution. When the government talks about air pollution, they're talking about outdoor pollution. Yeah. Um, they're talking about particulates. They're talking about less... We'll get less and less about nitrogen dioxide. But indoors, you know, we could be breathing high levels of particulates all the time. The real impacts on our health whether it be physical or mental, um, because of what we, the air we breathe indoors. Um, it's different from the levels and exposure, isn't it? Yeah. You know, it might be a level outside, but going to work takes you half an hour. Yeah, yeah. this brings it to yeah, short-term exposure, exactly. long-term exposure, short-term exposure commuting. Yeah. yeah. It might be just half an hour a day, but if you're spending 90% of your time indoors, whether that's in your home or the office, you know, the long-term exposure and the implications of that going forward, um, um, could be completely different. So if you, I mentioned, you know, people with respiratory disease, cardiovascular disease, if they're walking or perhaps going to work, they may get a, a you know, a high level hit of yeah. particulates that might trigger an exacerbation in the patient or, you know, an asthma attack. You know, that's bad. But long-term exposure could actually lead to the development of those conditions um, if you spend a lot of time indoors. So short-term exposure can exacerbate the problem if you already have it long-term exposure particularly indoor can actually cause um that um, disease and not just physical um mental um illnesses as well but really it can have an immediate effect on performance as well well that takes us really nicely into the next bit because actually how does this composition of air um affect human performance how, how what is it about this air quality that we could actually see on, on a day-to-day -day basis that that could affect what i'm doing paul yeah um well, I think that brings us to the carbon dioxide as well. So carbon dioxide isn't thought of as a um, generally thought of as an air pollutant because, like I said, we normally talk about air, outdoor pollution. But indoors, um, you know, carbon dioxide can be um, a problem in terms of performance, in terms of our ability to think, our ability to strategize, etc. Um, normal levels of indoor, uh, outdoor carbon dioxide is around about 
400 um, PPM, which is about five per million. Indoors, we get on average about 900 um, PPM. But with increasing levels of carbon dioxide outside, as we're seeing because, um, because of combustion, forest, transport, etc., they reckon by the end of the century, uh, research has shown that it'll go from about 400 to about 900 ppm outside. Now we can cope with it because we're used to that indoors. The problem is, if it goes up outside, it'll increase inside as well. So they reckon um, in both at the end of the century, indoor levels on average will be about 1,400, 1,500 ppm. Now we know from research that CO2 levels indoors anywhere between 1,000 and 2,000 ppm um, makes us sluggish, makes us tired, we can't right. eat properly. So that's not just, not just relevant for the workplace, that's re relevant for our, the home as well. Levels are going to increase indoors, so generally we're going to be more sluggish in our daily lives, um, regardless of whether we need to think about work or, or anything else. Well. And they reckon that's going to have a huge um, implication on, on mental health and um, well-being within the uh, next few decades. Wow. So... As you said, if, when you get to a certain level, you start feeling sluggish, you start feeling that, but what, what happens when carbon dioxide increases further? What, what are the, I guess, what, what, again, I'm going back to, uh, in my mind, to the, the, the military um, elements that I've seen where you do get locked, you know, you, you get locked inside a, a tin can, for want of a better expression. Um, what are the behaviours can we expect to see or, or adverse effects on our behaviour? Well, um short-term inability to think in, in reaction time Re reaction time you get so yeah you get sluggish long-term exposure in these environments can uh, permanently um co can cause uh, cognitive decline in that person which means that you know, you know if, if they're in the army as in, you know in, a, in an office with, with, with continuously high levels um then you know when they hit old age um, they they might well be prone to um, illnesses like Alzheimer's disease. So we might see an increase in, in in mental diseases like like Alzheimer's and others as well. So nobody really knows, but and, and the research is just starting on on this. Right? So yeah. in the next sort of five ten years, we probably have quite a bit of data on what the long term effects are of, of carbon dioxide alone and the increasing levels indoors as well. There's been work on, on the short term, hasn't there? We've seen quite a lot of that. I mean, what, what might help here um, is to give you a, to give the numbers a bit of relevance. Mm -hmm. So I know Paul's saying there's three, four hundred parts per million outside. We know once it gets starts to get above a thousand, fifteen hundred, it starts to affect your reaction time, your comfortability, memory recall. Uh, but to put into relative terms, uh, an unventilated classroom with thirty kids in it hits about two thousand parts per million an hour. Wow. We've all been yeah. in the classroom with the windows closed and we've all struggled in the second half of the lesson. <laughs> yes. But something else, I mean, when we started talking about the effect, we always talked about you know, the effect on the human. Um, cars, people fall asleep at the wheel. Yeah, that, that's yeah. potentially a huge CO2 problem. Now, you can jump in your car now with the air, when you close the doors, there's going to be around, you know, between 300 and 1,000 parts a million. Put three other people on that car, put your windows up and go for a drive, Within 20 minutes, if you've not got the ventilation on that air, will hit over 2,000 parts per million. Now, wow. within an hour, it's over 3,000. And the studies uh, we've seen that once it gets to about 3,000, your cognitive ability is reduced by 25%. Now, they're real numbers that are kind of scary, aren't they? You hear them yeah. 
that's significant. Yeah. We all feel that we open the window, we get fresh air, you know, so it's not, we're not going to torture ourselves and try to drive. But uh, obviously, you don't do as much in the bad weather. And I think a lot of people falling asleep at the wheel of the desk, there's a good chance a lot of it is down to CO2 levels within the car. So I think, well, we know for a fact Tesla look at this in terms of internal sensors within the cars. But uh, exactly that leads us perfectly to where we've had a couple of mini workshops as well, is looking at other confined spaces, especially where performance is a requirement. So there's obviously much more your space than, than, uh, than others when you think of enclosed spaces and tanks and subs and... Yeah. And, uh, and, and really trying to learn now what they have in place in performance. But it, it, can, it can go a step further as well. I mean, one of our wonderful uh, workshop exercises, we were trying to work out what other gases we could feed into people, the kind of super social model. <laughs> yes. you know? well, okay. it, it was quite easy to, find, to push someone as a gas to, to, to trigger that fight or flight reaction speed, to heighten reactions, to slow down reactions, keep them calm. Just we could breathe that in, couldn't we? Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. that was just a bit of fun. Yeah, that was our super soldier workshop. <laughs> cool. So, so in terms of the monitoring, yeah, the, the beautiful thing with CO two is because it's uh, generally measured in industry quite a lot, and the sensors are they're a lot cheaper, effectively, than because they're a lot more mass produced. So, a, a CO two sensor within the workplace, we have small small units that the battery lasts two years. It's like a little velcro tape, stick it to the wall. Um, Laura One IoT, so we've got the buzzwords again. <laughs> and they have, you know, because I think one gateway will cover and only about four floors of a building. So it is a relatively cheap one to ship, but definitely it is the, it's moving away from what, because all we know when we read the news and the papers are the levels are here in Beijing, the levels, are, the levels are here in London. It really is about exposure. So it's not just about a dumb sensor that says a level at the time. We really need more data. It needs to be, you know, how long each person has spent within each of those particular areas to calculate an exposure. I mean, that's, that's the data that, is that more the long-term data that Paul's talking about, I think, referring to and what we need to understand about the, the long-term effect. Uh, from my own point of view in dealing with our commercial clients, we are, we're really looking at the short-term effect. So uh, we're in talks with a couple of the largest call centers in the UK, because uh, that is something where you can apply a, a KPI to. You know, yeah. So look at the quality of CO2 in the air. We know already that they're, they're higher than average CO2. So if we adjust the gas flow there, uh, do they have a performance increase? And that's what was just kicking off with us at the moment. I think Americans are way ahead of us in terms of what they do for clients and casinos, but it's probably similar thinking. If you are new to human factors and ergonomics, you might be wondering exactly what it is. In a nutshell, human factors is the study of how humans behave physically and psychologically in relation to particular environments, products, or services. As you will no doubt realize, that means human factors practitioners can add value to almost any project because they all involve people. The trick is getting that value as early in the project as you can because it ends up being much cheaper than fixing the issues later on. Really, I guess that is a business driver, isn't it? Because they want to improve performance and things. But most, with the best one in the world, a lot of a lot of the companies don't are not really as concerned about you know the um, I guess the general environment or how people are at home. That this is going to have a lot of drive by the government to make you know to make the almost the ubiquitous nature of, of what what it is you're talking about come to effect. So, uh, Paul, what is um, what are governments doing about this? What are you know is, is there any drivers coming from? Um, from government or the legal side of things? Yes, yeah, and they're under intense pressures and need to move out uh, pollution. Um, because the media, you know, the media have been on to it for years as well. So it, it's, 
everybody knows about air pollution, so they're going to have to act. And the reason they've got to act is, is because current legislation doesn't protect people. Um, it's complex. Um, it doesn't work well. There's, there's two pieces of legislation in the UK. There's a uh, Environment Act, which is a UK government act, um, which has been around since 1995, I think. And that just um, allows local authorities, because local authorities are responsible for monitoring that. Um, it allows them to monitor, but there's no, um, they, they, they have targets under this Environment Act, local authorities, but they don't have to necessarily um, cure the air pollution problem in that area if they, if they have one. They only have to work towards coming up with a solution of reducing um, high levels of air pollution. The second piece of legislation is an EU directive, 2008 directive, which uh, was enshrined in law, UK law in, in 2010. And, and even post-Brexit, because it, it's enshrined in UK law, and we can keep that. And that's the piece of legislation where governments have to report illegal levels of air pollution if it's been found by a local authority uh, back to the EU or it'll be the UK government going forward. And then they, ha they have to, or they're supposed to, act on it. But in practice, that they, they haven't been doing that. So since 2016, um, the UK government has been in the High Court three times and um, lost the case on, on those three occasions because of illegal levels of NO2 nitrogen dioxide right across the UK. Um, they were taken to court by Climate Earth, um, uh, Environment Legal um, Organisation. Um, yeah, and like I said, they lost. So that's put pressure on the UK government and the devolved governments to um, try and reduce levels of NO2 to legal levels, which is less than 40 micrograms per cubic metre. Um, within their regions. And that's why we see the introduction of um, clean air zones in cities across England um, and strategies, mitigation strategies by councils such as Cardiff Council to reduce, dramatically reduce um, NO2 levels across the, um, across, across the city. For particulates, um, the legal levels, which are 25 down to 20 microns per cubic meter now, are far too high. So the World Health Organization are putting pressure on the governments to reduce um, PM 2.5 levels all the way down to 10 micrograms per cubic meter. Scotland, head of the game, they've already done that. So, so that's their legal limit up in Scotland. Um, and the UK government, Welsh um, government, um, have come up with clean air strategies or clean air plans we have in Wales, where they're setting out how they can reduce levels of um, particulates right across the country, albeit acknowledging the fact that a lot of those Particulates come from, like I say, uh, Northern Europe, um, from agriculture, far, far afield. So the governments are having to come up with um, new legislation because the current ones aren't, uh, laws aren't protecting us. So in England, we're going to have a new, there'll be a new environmental, uh, Environment Act um, over the next couple of years. There's already um, a clean air strategy released last year by the UK government. In Wales, there'll be a um, new Clean Air Act um, not in this current parliament, but they're committed to it in the, in the next parliament. And the Clean Air Plan was released, uh, released um, this year. And, you know, the strategy in the, in the UK and the plan in Wales is, is, is positive. Um, um, and it's all about new ways of getting the message out um, as well, um, whether it be through apps and phones, um, how that information is provided, and how they give up strategies for people to, um, like I said earlier on, it's all about behavioural change, how we change our behaviour.
um, and they're focusing on, on strategies um, to help um, deliver behavioral change um, as well. So I think, you know, we're cautious, but I think that um, new strategies and plans um, have been criticized by NGOs and other organizations, but there's cautious support for the plans as well, but, and always pressure to improve on these as well. But I think we'll see dramatic reductions in, um, in for PM 2.5, or what the legal limit would be for PM 2.5 in the next couple of years, and quite rightly so. So there will be new legislation, and it should protect us if it's done properly. But there's also commitment to having much more monitoring Mm-hmm. Um, across the UK, including Wales as well. And that looks like it's going to push into indoor as well. And they, yeah, indoor pollution is mentioned in, in these strategies and plans. And they, yeah, there will be legislation covering indoor pollution, which, which, is, which is quite right as well. How they, how they govern that is very difficult to say what we do in, in our own homes. But if it's just about getting the message across that we're aware of levels of indoor um, air pollution, um, then that's a good start. I want to go way back to talking about, you know, the swap and finding that reason to do things. I think as well, you are right about the indoor, for the commercial side, the indoor air quality measuring, yes, it has a commercial impact. But it can also be a test of well-being. You know, all the reports show there are fewer headaches, there are fewer sickness days, all the way down to the, the staff treat better at night, you know, when the air is better in a, in a green building, it's called that. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's potential cost savings and ventilation strategies in larger buildings. They may be emptying the air more than they actually need to. Uh, it, it's also been shown to be uh, a potential recruitment tool that if you actually want your business as a, as a cleaner air zone, uh, stats have shown that it is more attractive to, to getting, especially when we're talking about in our space, the talent uh, is very, very, very tricky to get uh, <laughs> yes. high-end high end devs. You know? so, and they, they do look at that. They look at they, they work entirely. Half of their decision is pretty much based on the working environment, if not more. You know, so wrapping up into this huge well-being. So yes, okay, we might get that with the CO2 and less headaches, but again, we're still delivering something of lasting value. Yeah. And it's, and it's sensors and it's data and it's, it's awareness and it's obviously the visualization piece making it simple to understand as possible. Just allowing them to make good decisions really and quickly. So what you've um, spoken about is, Paul, you've given us the good driver on why we're going to do do good change. Joe, you've highlighted a lot of the stuff about um, the sort of change that he can deliver and the stuff you just highlighted, actually, it's well within everybody's interest to be uh, to be looking at this sort of thing, because not only from the legal perspective, but actually, you know, hiring good people, retaining good people and looking after the stuff you've got. What does the future look like then? If you, you you've you've highlighted um, or you've touched on the fact that you've got the Think Air and this 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 air network that's rolling out, what can we see in the next? What do you think? Two, five, ten years? Oof, sensors everywhere. That's <laughs> <laughs> like, well, I think I know by the end of by the end of this year, we'll have the largest um, live sensor network in Wales, uh, potentially in the UK. We're still trying to find a bigger one, but it might we might be able to say that with all the we're looking at. But the shift will be without any shadow of a doubt to wearables. Yeah, and it's and it's probably going to go a step. It won't it won't be wearables in what we're thinking of now in terms of Fitbits and, and whatnot because that's not actually practical to measure air quality. It, it will be. In, Printables. It'll be printables. It'll be stickers. You know, um, something we've not alluded to yet. But air quality is a lot better lower down than it is. Sorry, a lot worse lower down than it is higher up. Um, the younger, most vulnerable, the young forming lungs are the most vulnerable. So the ideal place actually for a stick-on sensor would be the bumper bar of a buggy. You know, they're, they're the qualities need to improve. But that, that's where we see it. And 
And I think this will all be, when, when Paul mentioned it quite a few times, absolutely right, the behavioural change. The, the drivers for that, well, obviously by definition, people are going to want to change. It's going to be driven by wanting a better world for your kids. It's going to be want, uh, better health. Uh, and as soon as the information is there where people start to get an understanding of it, and then everything becomes down in price, and it's more available and it's easier to understand, they're going to learn more about it. They're going to bring more of it into every part of their life, whether it be a quality it won't just be air quality, the other things as well, but it will be in the car, it will be in the workplace, people will know their exposures, it will be on the buggies, it will be on the bikes, you know, and I think that that whole shift into, I mean, we've actually started experimenting already with primitive sensor designs. So when you say, you know, 5, 10, 15 years away, I think that's all within five. We will have printable air quality sensors. From there, we're talking about subdermal implants and, and want to chat with Elon. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, what about you, Paul? What do you think? Yeah, I think I like to that. We're seeing a lot more money being government money being made available for research within academia as well, partnering with um, industry, um, but also encouraging academics right across universities, not just in the UK, but worldwide to get together to come up with new solutions as well. There's a rush, there's a need for it for, for quick solutions with, with air pollution. Because let's not forget, you know, we, we talk about health impacts, but um, you know, if you're a government, you're thinking of the economy as well. And there's all sorts of figures bandied about, about the, you know, how much is costing governments for the impacts of air pollution, you know, in terms of sickness days and 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 uh, staying in hospital admissions cases. You know, it, it's probably around about 20 billion. That's a, that's a figure per year to the UK government, which, which is a figure you see bandied about a lot. It's probably higher, and they work with projected figures as well. You're probably talking 30, perhaps 30 million plus, a uh, billion plus, you know, within five, 10 years. So, so there's a real need for the governments um, to address this because of the um, not just health economic issues, but you know, the, you know, the financial implications for governments as well. Yeah, I think we'll be a driver as well. As soon as it's identified and you set the levels for the indoor, every tenant, sorry, sorry, every landlord, every business is going to have a duty of care. You know, that, that's, that's going to be a driver. I mean, we're not saying that's an opportunity for the government to pass the buck, but it's, it's going to be a driver. You know, that as soon as these are, especially when you think of, uh, well, we are actually, uh, a new client came on with us in the last week as two housing associations are merging over 5,000 properties. And the reason we won the whole digitization piece was because of our sensor uh, expertise. Because they know that these 1,000 properties they're going to be building next year they know already that they want some kind of infrastructure for sensors and they know that they want air quality sensors in their properties. That's a housing association in Wales. And they're not being, you know, derogatory there, but it's it caught me a bit by surprise that it really is on maybe on people's radar more than we realize it is. Yeah, and it, it's you know, it, it, it's a fact that air pollution is higher in areas where there's higher deprivation as well. Um, areas of high, you know, higher deprivation of, of, of higher incidence of, of different types of diseases like respiratory disease and cardiovascular disease. These are the people who are far more susceptible to air pollution if they're living in rented accommodation as well. Then, you know, landlords already have a, you know, you've got to have a carbon monoxide um, monitor in, 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 in a house. Um, that's to prevent instant death, I guess, from, from a leak, but, you know, long-term, even short-term exposure to high levels of carbon dioxide VOCs, uh, volatile organic compounds, these come off, like, you know, came from the walls, from, from furniture. These are all being breathed in and can affect the mental health of, of these people as well. You know, the research is, is showing that now. 
Um, so okay, it's not just physical health, it's mental health and well-being um, as well. Not just about performance, it's about depression. Um, there's good research um, now showing that um, indoor air pollution leads to high-level depression as well. And if that's happening in, in rented accommodation, there should be a responsibility of landlords to be, to be looking at that and, and monitoring the, so they have that information which they can provide. That's brilliant. And now that we're all suitably terrified of the air that we breathe, um, it's really good to know that actually there's a that there's solutions in place for a from a government perspective that they're really driving down on this and really uh, taking it seriously, but also that the with the involvement of IoT and things like that, then actually that could be a really positive impact on um, on what it is that we're doing. And I would hope that maybe in um, I don't know twelve eighteen months time we can we can get together around this virtual table again um, and talk about because you've talked about a lot about yes we are gathering data at the moment but as you both alluded to it's not the data it's what we do with it and it's how we can have them positive impacts on people's lives people's workplaces so hopefully we can um, gather around the table again and actually talk about those sort of impacts um, and see what sort of impact you're making but for now I think um, Paul and Joe thank you very much for your time. Um, that's been possibly the quickest hour I've spent um, on this podcast. And I could literally go on for hours trying to uh, get more and more uh, in depth about it. And perhaps it, we can pick up a couple of topics again um, in the short term, because there was a couple of things I think there that we could probably go into a lot more detail on. Um, but thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks very much. Thank you. Barry. Thank you for listening to 1202, the human factors podcast. Please do get in touch with your thoughts, questions, and comments. You can contact us at www.barrykirby.co.uk and on Twitter at B-A-Z underscore K. See you next time. And remember, it's more than just common sense.